Hey everyone, Dingo here, and welcome to the Saffron Academy podcast. The objective of this podcast is to be an additional educational resource for our viewers. Saffron Finance does not endorse the viewpoints shared in these conversations, nor should this be construed as any kind of financial advice. But we are interested in giving exposure to a wide range of brilliant investors, developers, entrepreneurs, traders, and so much more. If you have an idea for a topic or a particular guest request, feel free to write into the show at dingo at saffron.finance. This week, Zach interviews Mark Richardson at Bancor. Mark talks about his scientific background and how the COVID pandemic led him to switching career paths. They go on to talk about the past and future of Bancor, Saffron Finance's whitelisting on Bancor, the beginnings of DeFi, and so much more. Zach has really put together an incredible episode here with Mark, and I can't wait for you guys to check it out. Hey guys, so as you know, I'm Zach, and I'm very excited to have Mark Richardson of Bancor on the podcast today. Mark, thanks so much for joining me, and uh, how's your day going so far? Oh, my pleasure, Zach. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning for me right now, so my day is just just beginning. <laughs> uh, awesome. Um, so we're going to start off with, with the old faithful of questions, so to, so to speak. I believe when we had Meltem Demers on the show, she referred to it as the rabbit hole question, which is basically, tell us how you first got into or heard about crypto and Bitcoin. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think the the first I ever heard about um, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin was like way back in uh, 2010. Um, I remember I was on YouTube and there was a, um, a a YouTuber called Me Molly that I used to, to watch frequently, and uh, she had a you know a, a, a small uh, anecdote about Bitcoin and, and what cryptocurrency is, and so I, I remember learning about it back then. But uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't buy anything. <laughs> I could go <laughs> yeah. back now. I you know I, I'm sure that I would have uh, corrected that. Uh, cool. Yeah. And uh, just kind of on that same line of questioning, uh, one thing I love to ask our guests about is the moment you decided or or at least started considering crypto as a career path, because as we both know, as our listeners know, there are a lot of investors or fans or people who have interest in the space, but they don't necessarily see it as an option for their main occupation. So I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about kind of that moment where you realized like, hey, you know, maybe beyond something I'd be interested in investing in, maybe this is something I can do as a job. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my transition into, into cryptocurrency was, um, I, I think, is pretty atypical. Um, so I, I didn't come from uh, the traditional finance sector or, or investing or anything like that. I was actually a, a research scientist for, for 14 years. Um, and what kind of, uh, I, I think, put me straight into, into crypto was that um, I, I basically, I'd set up a, 
a very large research stint in in Germany. I was supposed to go to the um, Max Planck Institute for, for Correlates and Surfaces. I had a, a research grant um, to complete a, a leg of work under the supervision of, of Peter Seeberger. Um, this was sponsored by the German government. This was a, a DAAD um, research stay. And um, yeah, I was, I was really looking forward to it. I had basically done 12 months of, of uh, preparation for this thing. And uh, I was supposed to arrive in Berlin, I think um, it, was, it was either March or, or April in, in 2020. And it was, you know, it, my, my flight out of the country was about a, a week and a half, I think, um, after Australia closed its borders due to the pandemic. Um, I live in, in Melbourne in Australia and we had, uh, you know, one of the, the longest and harshest lockdowns, I think of, of, um, certainly anywhere in the country, but I, I also think anywhere in the world, um, I was in and out of, um, you know, the, <clears throat> there was a period of, of about six months where I didn't really, uh, set foot in the, in the lab in any meaningful sense. Um, and even if I, I was, um, heading into work as usual, um, it wouldn't really be clear what I would be doing there, seeing as uh, most of the, the work that I'd been uh, preparing for was supposed to be taking place in, in Germany with the, the machines that, um, that Peter Seberger had in his lab. So uh, I basically was at home uh, for sort of six to nine months with very little to do. Um, and, you know, my, I, I could see uh, a huge amount of what I'd been uh, preparing for and, you know, what was supposed to be a, a significant step forward for my career sort of evaporating. Um, and so I really started to sort of look around for, for what was in demand. Um, I've, for a long time, I've been watching the cryptocurrency scene evolve. Um, I've often, um, you know, be, been watching DeFi in particular uh, evolve with interest. And so I started spending all of this time that I, I had um, sort of getting well up to speed on what all of the, um, what all of the major developments had been and what the, the major projects were. I was um, involving myself with a couple of the different DeFi communities. Um, I was uh, a prominent community member, I think in the, in the KyberSwap community, um, obviously with, with Bancor, uh, I was basically experimenting with, you know, what community involvement with these different projects would, would look like, um, but also getting, you know, well up to speed on um, what the, the philosophies and, and tokenomics of, of all of these different projects actually was and, and trying to decide which one would be, um, you know, which would be the most likely to have a, a long-term um, value proposition, not, not just to DeFi and to blockchain, but, but to the world and, um, and to the people living in it. Um, and so when uh, Bancor uh, announced their, their DAO um, with the release of version 2.1 in October of 2020, I was kind of very well primed, um, you know, with a lot of the, you know, the research that I'd been doing in this space to, to sort of uh, lead the community um, as the, the DAO sort of started to launch. Um, I, I was one of the, the community members that wrote um, some of the sort of formative policy for how the DAO should operate, um, 
the supermajority rules for, for the uh, Bancor's process and um, the, uh, the, the quorum percentages and things like that were, were some of the policies that I wrote in the, in the beginning. Um, and I was also on uh, all of the, the Bancor community calls. Uh, at, at that time, there, were, there wasn't that many of us. Um, but we were started thinking about uh, what Bancor's long-term uh, value proposition was going to be and what, what sort of features and, and, and products Bancor should, um, should develop. And uh, within about two months of uh, the Bancor DAO uh, launching, I was uh, collaborating with the, the Bancor founders on an uh, interest-free and liquidation-free credit system um, that in was leveraging Bancor's unique tokenomics. Uh, this eventually launched as uh, the Bancor Vortex, and it was uh, it became a very big part of, of Bancor's narrative, and I still think it's one of the um, the most unique and, and interesting uh, DeFi products around. Um, so shortly after that, after that launched and, and following its success, uh, the uh, Bancor Foundation reached out to me with with an offer to uh, commence full time uh, research for them and and. Uh, my scientific career hadn't really, uh, you know, bounced back at all, so I didn't see any reason to um, to stick with it. And so, yeah, I turned my turned my back on on scientific research and began uh, DeFi research, and I haven't looked back. <laughs> awesome, man! Yeah, um, and I know those those research grants are are not easy to come by, and, and I'm sure, you know, like a lot of people, it was uh, very tough to realize that COVID is kind of taking a lot away from you. But I really do think that, you know, crypto and DeFi specifically has this kind of arms wide open mentality. Um, and it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, but as long as you're willing to put in the work, as long as you're willing to educate yourself, you know, the community is really welcoming and, you know, there's always value to add. So I think that's, uh, that was a, r- a really cool, uh, very interesting story uh, as well. And I'm just wondering, you know, since we're kind of jumping uh, from 2010 to basically present day, not too long ago, um, were you keeping tabs that whole time on, on crypto and DeFi or were you kind of at least for a period of time checked out or were you always kind of, even when you were in your scientific uh, pursuits, were you keeping an eye on, on what was going on? No, I tend to be, I'm I'm a pretty obsessive person by nature. And so when (laughs) I was in, when I was in science, I was in it, you know, um, body and soul. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I spent four years in, in California. I was a a lecturer for the the chemistry department there for a little while uh, for UCI. And um, I remember when I was there, this was when, um, so uh, yeah, I, I was there from uh, 20, 2015 uh, to 2019. And so I think right at the beginning of, of that leg of it, or you know, about a year in is when Ethereum uh, began to launch. And so the, the, there were these kinds of um, punctuation marks, I would say throughout my uh, scientific career that sort of marked these really significant developments in cryptocurrency. So in 2010, that was right at the end of my, my honors year. And I think the reason I was watching, you know, YouTube and learning about it was because I was procrastinating writing my thesis on it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, being a, you know, 
my first postdoc in, in California and learning about Ethereum when I was over there, basically I, I was always kind of aware of it. It was always something in the, in the background that I was, um, that I was occasionally distracted by, I think you could say. Um, so, so it never really sort of, you know, I I never really wanted to, to spend too much time on it. Uh, you know, as a, a young scientist, I I also didn't have that much money to throw around. So I wasn't looking to invest or anything like that. Um, but it was something that I was always aware of. I was always excited by, and, um, I was always convinced that, um, we were sort of, uh, at the beginning of this new, uh, industrial age, right. Of, of public blockchains and what they could do for society. So, yeah, I was never, uh, keeping very close tabs on it. I think as, as you put it, um, but I could always see it right in my, in my peripheral vision. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I definitely know what you mean. And I think that, that, I mean, it says a lot about all of our guests who come on here that they really decided to take that plunge but uh particularly for you uh such a stark you know kind of change in direction is is really cool and i think that's one of the first times i've i've heard something uh like that so uh i'm sure you're bringing such a unique perspective uh to the bancor team so that's very cool and it's no wonder why they they reached out and gave you an offer i think that also speaks to a lot too that you weren't even necessarily soliciting that. Um, but I would want to hear, I mean, obviously you weren't there in the start and they were right. a very early, uh, a team in this space and really blazing trails. So I was just wondering if, you know, do you think that that kind of experience and all of those, kind of wisdoms that come along the way with being the first or being a pioneer. Is there kind of a holdover effect on the culture of Bancor, whether it's the community, whether it's the team? Um, you know, is there anything specific you think that was picked up during that process uh, that still informs the way you guys are approaching things today? Or do you think that it's a little bit more of a, you know, a lot of people are moving fast and breaking things and, you're just kind of rolling with the punches and what's new is what's most important. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. There's no, um, there's no sort of clean answer for it. Uh, I think it would be naive to assume that, you know, uh, being an older project and having, you know, this kind of this wealth of experience, you know, the, the team, the, the, the protocol and the community, um, they're, experience of, of cryptocurrency and of DeFi is, is going to be nuanced, right, by, by this kind of change in narrative. So I think yeah. for, for example, you know, like for, for the SushiSwap community and the Uniswap community, it's been nothing but a party, right, since, since the, the birth of these projects. Yeah. yeah. But, but for Bancor, right, for, for starting back in 2017 in the, in, you know, the ICO era, followed by, you know, a, a three-year bear market, um, you know, that, that was... Um, we still have community members, right? A lot of our community members were around for the ICO and we first invested during the ICO. Um, and so they, you know, they, they kind of carry a, a chip on their shoulder <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, for and, sure. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's totally justified. Um, and the other thing is that um, I think the, the, the DeFi community has, compl- has just exploded over the last year. And for uh, a lot of the people that are, that are in it now, 
um, things like this, like regulation talk and, you know, government intervention and, and KYC and all this kind of stuff. For them, this is like brand new ideas. And they're like, you know, I, I thought this was blockchain. I thought that this was, you know, private and um, anonymous and this kind of, you know, this kind of mentality. Um, but not realizing that this is like the second or third time that we've kind of, you know, this industry has had this conversation. It might be sort of the, the most significant. Um, it certainly has more momentum behind it now than it, than it has before. Um, but for Bancor, we're kind of looking around, seeing everyone panic, thinking, well, you know, we've got a very long standing and strong relationship with, with regulators. Um, the, the first version of Bancor, right, Bancor version one, it was a KYC protocol because that was the legal advice that we had at the time. Um, and it was, you know, uh, it was, uh, developed and, and launched under the supervision of the, of the Swiss regulator because we, you know, with the, the, the Bankor foundation is still a, a, a Swiss nonprofit and, and makes sure that we are uh, observing, you know, both Swiss, uh, and European regulatory practices as well as the U S regulatory practices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've also had, um, uh, We've also been through the court system in the United States. Um, it, it took a, a, a little while, but there are a couple of, um, let, let's say, o- opportunistic um, career litigators um, that took the opportunity after the uh, ICO uh, bubble started to burst um, to start uh, taking um, uh, whatever projects they could uh, through the court system, trying to accuse them of, of um, selling unregistered securities. And so really the, the Bancor team and the Bancor Foundation were, were a part of that first wave of, of projects that um, had to actually prove their mettle um, in one of the, you know, the harshest environments um, that the cryptocurrency has ever seen, right, during the, the 2017 to 2020 bear market. And um, while regulators were um, really, um, you know, pressuring uh, projects like ours to, to really demonstrate that they weren't actually uh, qualified as a security. So we've been through all of that process. And, you know, I think that we are sort of uh, war hardened as a, um, as a result. Um, but I think that that is, you know, to our benefit. I, I think that we're much harder to scare. I think our community is um, a, a lot more level headed, a lot more uh, sort of long term thinking, not as Hype driven and um, and not so uh, not so easily distracted, right? By um, by fast emerging, um, you know, fast emerging trends or things like that, right? Where the community project as a whole has um, has a you know a, an earned erudition in in cryptocurrency culture, <laughs> you could say, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, uh, that, that, it certainly changes the way that we approach things, but I, I think that it is a, um, it, it's a positive, it's a positive thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that basically any, any length of time, uh, be, of experience rather any, any length of time you've spent within the crypto space is invaluable and, uh, for the for the reasons that you you just mentioned, you know, there's particularly in this space, there's so many different things that seem to rear their head again and again. Whether it's what people call China FUD or regulatory right. threats, or 
you know, kind of these incremental headlines of, well, they might do this and then, oh, they're, they're proposing it, but it's not passed or, you know, kind of all these things that are, I'm not sure whether what the motivation is, whether it's people trying to get clicks or, or whatever, but the bottom line is they're certainly out there and you can kind of see who they're affecting and scaring or, you know, what, whatever effect it is, uh, you can see who's being um, kind of whether they're changing their strategy based on that or whether they know that, Hey, this isn't, this isn't the first rodeo. And I love what you said about, you know, kind of these old school guys, because my story is that I, you know, I was really into crypto back in 2013, probably 2013 to 2015 or so. And then I ended up, I had a career in movies and TV and that, you know, you're working 14 hours a day. It took up most of my life. And when I came back, I realized there was such a narrative change of, like you said, all these people thinking that it should be anonymous and no fees, et cetera. And, you know, you don't hear those people quite as much anymore. Uh, at least they're not voicing those concerns, but if they are around, they are those kind of battle hardened people who know that, listen, we've seen this before and everyone who's claiming that, you know, we're screwed or what, whatever the uh, fear du jour is, is just kind of, you know, another hurdle to jump through and that we, we will get through it because uh, I think that the, the industry is overall aware of that and, and very resilient. Um, so that was a great answer. And it just it brought back so many memories of being at the Bitcoin Center uh, back in 2013 right, on, on yeah. Wall Street, which was a, a wild time for sure. So it's a little different now, uh, but I think that we're, we're certainly better for it. Um, but anyway, to, to rein the conversation in just a little bit. Um, so I would love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about what you guys are working on over at Bancor. You know, obviously we talked about, you know, kind of the past and what you guys had been through, but I would love to hear about what you're working on, what you uh, specifically are excited about and kind of like, what are the next steps you guys are taking and, and what's the future of Bancor look like? Yeah, for sure. So I think there's, um, there's a really interesting narrative um, that kind of leads up to where we are in the present day, just with regards to the product development. So if you don't mind, I, th- I think that it would, it'd be nice to sort of just quickly reflect on what the different versions of Bancor have been. And then we can talk a little bit about where we're going. Yep. Um, please, so. please. I would love that. Yeah. So the, the very first version of Bancor um, was the, uh, the original AMM, right? This was uh, E.L. Herzog, one of the uh, Bancor founders, sort of conceived of the idea of the automatic market maker and pool tokens. And that sort of formed the, um, the original Bancor um, product. Now, the, the reason why this came into existence was that Bancor was already uh, researching community currencies. And this was, um, you know, a, a product that it had in, in a bunch of different cells um, around the world. And it, all of these community currencies sort of started running into the same issue. And that is that they would run really well for a while, right? Like maybe the, the green grocer would have a community currency that allows him to, um, you know, exchange uh, value with his hairdresser or, you know, with the, 
the gas station or something, it would, it would work for a time, but then eventually they, they would just lose momentum. And the, the reason for that loss of momentum is that these currencies had no way to know their value, right? You, you can't actually um, exchange value within that community um, to another community somewhere else, right? It, the, while these community currencies were extremely efficient, um, you know, within themselves, um, all of the things that made them great were also the things that made it insular, right? There, as a part of a, a global connected community, the, these these little um, miniature, you know, economic uh, bubbles, uh, and I, I don't mean that in the sense that you know, speculative bubble. I just mean the fact that it's it's isolated from everything else. Um, yeah. it, it, it meant that the, these currencies had a shelf life, right? They, they, they were a, a blip and it was difficult to sustain. And so looking into why these currencies would fail, um, it really is because you need to have someone um, who tells you what this currency is worth relative to other currencies. And if you've got something that is, you know, uh, that's only being used by, you know, small communities in West Africa or something like that, there isn't really a, a professional market maker in the world that's really interested or incentivized to uh, help you make markets with it so that it can learn what it what its international value is, right? What its exchange rate should be with the US dollar or with the euro or anything like that. And so that's where AMMs actually came from. And I think that this gets lost, right? This is a very important part of the narrative for DeFi is that AMMs weren't, you know, a, a greedy, you know, fintech startup idea they were really born out of necessity and it really was to serve the needs of, um, of these little, um, you know, splinter cells around the world that were still, uh, you know, experimenting with this idea of, of cryptocurrency to serve community needs in the wake of, you know, their own failed, uh, national currency. So that was where the AMM came from. And that was sort of Bancor version one. Um, but at that stage, like I said earlier in the, in, in this presentation that um, all, all of the legal advice up to then was still that it, it's still an exchange and um, whatever currencies that you have on there should be treated like any other sort of um, any any other kind of uh, security uh, that is being traded on on a regular exchange. So Banco version one really looked a lot like something like you know Binance or the you know the Chicago Mercantile Exchange or something like that. That was, it was really, you know, it was much smaller than that and dealing with it, obviously a very different type of asset, but yeah. the, the sort of way that it was operated was as if it really was, you know, held to the same standards as these, as a regular exchange was. Um, and during that time, right, this is the ICO era, um, having a, a token back then was kind of a dirty idea. I'm not sure. I'm sure that you would remember this, Zach, right? It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But, yeah, right. Like uh, Vitalik Buterin in particular was uh, extremely upset that, you know, uh, token projects were launching and using ERC-20 assets as a way to sort of um, crowdfund stuff. And uh, Vitalik uh, specifically, but also generally the rest of the, um, the Ethereum Foundation was extremely critical of, of Bancor because um, they thought that the way, like that they didn't mind the AMM idea. In fact, they, you know, they, they quite liked the AMM idea, but they had this problem with BNT being used as the, um, as the universal conduit through which these other cryptocurrencies realized their value. They thought yeah. that, that Ethereum 
right? Should be the the asset that's, that's used, which of course, you know, of course, is, yeah. of course right? Of course, which is, you know, it, it's interesting to look back on that now because now Ethereum, like the actual Ethereum token has issues with um, smart contracts and we have to wrap it in inside an ERC-20 in order to use it in, in AMMs like, like Uniswap. Yeah. Um, but, you know, putting that to the side for, for a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forgetting about that. Forgetting about that for just a second. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so th- there was this um, this pushback and then, you know, um, a-, a lot of these ICOs um, actually did turn out to be fraudulent. I think, you know, obviously Bancor wasn't and, and many of the ICOs weren't. But these token projects suddenly had a very bad name, right? They, they started to look very scammy, very suspicious, and so, you know, that kind of tainted um, the, the, the beginning of DeFi, right? If you've got the Ethereum foundation being critical of your, of your model, and then you've got, you know, uh, it coming out of the woodwork that actually a lot of these ICOs were, were, were criminal enterprises, um, it, it didn't get off to, to the best start. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it actually persisted and it, did, it you know, the, the Bancor exchange, um, it, it did attract exactly the sort of attention that we thought that it would. I think that the first um, the first liquidity pool was set up by Gnosis. Um, and back then they weren't called liquidity pools. I think they were called token relays. Um, mm-hmm. And then shortly after that, there was the um, the power token, which is, you know, the, the power ledger um, energy. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, there were these cryptocurrency projects, other, you know, ICO era projects that immediately saw the value in being able to establish liquidity on on Ethereum without having to talk directly to a a professional market maker. Because, you know, market makers aren't cheap. You usually have to either loan them um, a a bunch of money to make markets for you, or they will actually, you know, uh, just just flat out charge you to... um, to, yeah. to take your token to a to an exchange, and so this was a huge overhead that I think a lot of projects didn't really want to deal with. Um, and at, at that time as well, you know, people take it for granted now that things like Binance and and Kraken are so well established. In 2017, that really wasn't the case. Um, a yeah. lot of these exchanges were still like pretty shady places, um, yeah. and it, it it didn't have the veneer that it does today. So, you know, being able to have a decentralized, totally transparent um, way of, of providing liquidity on Ethereum, um, it, the people that we built the, um, the protocol for, they immediately started using it. But it was a pain, right? The Swiss regulator was making sure that we, you know, if you wanted to start a liquidity, co- liquidity pool back then, you, we literally sent you paperwork, right, that you would have to fill out. Oh, and wow. Then, yeah, I'm, I'm not even kidding, right? We still have all of these things on file. We still have the original yeah. Gnosis and, and, you know, PowerPool um, oh, paperwork on file. It's still with the, the foundation. Um, and so meanwhile, right, while, um, while Bancor is, is sort of churning away trying to establish this new, this new type of exchange, um, the Ethereum Foundation funds uh, Hayden Adams to essentially fork the, the Bancor contracts. Uh, pull out the, the BNT token, which was the thing that they, they always had a problem with, and br- replace the uh, replace it with Ethereum as the base asset. Um, now, it, it's usually sort of told in, in, in exactly that way, except maybe without necessarily the um, the fact that the, the Ethereum Foundation was, was critical of, of BNT from, from the start. But I, I do want to give credit to Hayden. Um, the 
the Uniswap uh, V1 and V2 contracts, they're, they're extremely efficient. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he's a very talented, um, a very talented developer. And Uniswap was a, a terrific product. And one of the things that it did extremely well was completely ignore regulation. Yeah. So where, ba- <laughs> <right? laughs> where Bancor is still insisting that project teams fill out these forms and things. Uh, and, you know, our advice at the time as well was you can't even tell, you can't even mention fees, right? Even though, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, the, the pools were earning fees for liquidity providers, our lawyers were like, don't ever say that because, you know, <laughs> that you enter into this whole other world of pain. We just don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, but then Uniswap comes out and with its product and immediately starts telling people that they can earn fees and it's uh, you know trying to encourage uh, community members to, to establish their own liquidity pools, not just token projects. And so it really sort of, you know, Uniswap was a really interesting experiment in what happens if we just ignore regulatory advice, I think. Mm. And it demonstrated that, that you can do that. And nothing yeah. bad, nothing bad happens. <laughs> and so we were sort of inspired by that, I think. And I was like, okay, right. So we've been, uh, we've been too, um, you know, maybe too observant, if that's such a thing. You know, I, yeah. I don't think that anyone would be critical of the of the the approach that we took. Right, the first one through the gates is kind of has the most to lose. Um, yeah. And g- given the climate that Bancor was set up in, I don't think anyone would ever be. Um, you know, I don't think anyone would blame us for, for taking the approach that we did. But yeah, it was, as, it was the right move at exactly. that time. You know, exactly. and there was no precedent. There was really no precedent. And it was such an aggressive, like yeah. you said, with those litigators, I mean, your number one mission is basically to avoid a- anything worse happening, you know? Exactly right. Um, and, you know, for, for Uniswap as well to be a, a, an American project, means that um, effectively whatever they're doing is is um, likely under very close supervision of the American regulator. Yeah. And so if it, if it persisted past that, then probably, um, you know, there's not so much to worry about. And so the legal advice changed a little bit because now there's a precedent and we started to open it up a little bit more, right? We, you no longer have to fill out this paperwork and things. Um, during that time, though, right, some other... Um, some other versions of, of the, the technology that, that Bancor developed had started to appear elsewhere. Um, and this is something, you know, another part of the narrative that I think people miss. So, for example, um, the, uh, the Bancor protocol had already started to do, uh, introduce things like dynamic weights. And this is the, so, um, you know, this wasn't a part of our white paper, um, but this was um, some, of the, some of that initial theory was, was refined and then formalized by Balancer. And that became sort of the balancer protocol. Um, and while that was occurring, uh, Bancor was developing this, you know, in, quietly in the background, this idea that the, um, the, the dynamic weights could be used to address a problem that we kind of discovered with the launch of AMMs, which we now call impermanent loss. And that the the whole industry, I think, is slowly, you know, it took a, it took a little while. I thought everyone knew about it last year, but I still meet community members that are learning about it for the first time, usually with a, yeah, a broken why, heart. Why? Yeah. Why? Why are my assets different? Yeah, exactly. How did I lose money doing this? Yeah, I thought it's exactly. supposed to make money. Um, and so, yeah, Bancor really uh, first described impermanent loss um, 
you know, it concisely and immediately began working on ways to, to alleviate it because it doesn't make sense, right? If you're contributing to, to um, the, the DeFi economy and are providing value, um, it doesn't make sense that you should be financially disincentivized from, from performing that duty. So this idea of using dynamic weights to try and sort of match secondary market prices under the influence of, a, of an oracle um, started to become extremely interesting. Unfortunately, this, um, you know, I, I think at the time that they started to develop this technology, um, it wasn't immediately clear just how complicated it was going to be. I've just, you know, as I've become, um, you know, up to speed on, on Bancor's previous research, I've just recently, with the, with, uh, the stuff I'm researching right now, gone back and revisited what we're talking about, which is their, their version two. This was released in April of last year. And it is, it's a, a thing of beauty. It really, really is. There's um, some of the, the, just the understanding the mathematics of, of how version two achieved what it achieved. It, you know, it, it takes a, a lot of time. This is a, a sit down and, um, you know, study this kind of thing, quiz yourself, make sure you've got Wikipedia open because you get, you're going to be introduced to, to operators that, you know, that don't usually show up in, in AMM math. Um, but yeah, it was really terrific. Um, and in the beginning, it was actually quite successful. So version two launched. Um, it was the, the first um, AMM to be fully integrated with, with Chainlink. And it used uh, Chainlink price feeds to, to do exactly what I, what I just said. It basically um, adjusted the rates that the AMM is, is uh, quoting to users based on what's happening in secondary markets. And that meant that it was able to anticipate these changes that would usually result in a permanent loss. Um, and it was, um, yeah, for the, the other thing that version two did, sorry, was that it also, uh, because you no longer have the, uh, the requirement to sort of discover the price of the asset, right? Because it's mirroring um, exchanges uh, coming from, from secondary sources you no longer need to fund um, all of the curve at once. And so the other interesting thing that, that Bancor version two did, again, I'll just remind everyone, this is in April of last year, um, was we uh, introduced this thing that we called liquidity amplification, which of course today is now known as concentrated liquidity and is now associated with Uniswap V3, but we were doing it um, you know, quite, quite a ways before uh, Uniswap V3 um, came up with it. Um, and this, this idea of liquidity amplification meant that you get very, very good uh, slippage from the trading perspective. So really, mm -hmm. Bancor version 2 was supposed to be this complete solution, right? The, the thing that DeFi had been waiting for. It, it, had, uh, it had something for liquidity providers in the sense that the um, impermanent loss was alleviated. And it had something for traders because you could now process much larger transactions without having um, the same sort of price impact that you usually did. And so why don't we have version two anymore? Um, it's because the way that it, it operated, uh, and like I said, it, for, a, for a little while, it worked very well um, until um, arbitrageurs and Ethereum miners learned that if they manipulated the future price, they could anticipate what the Oracle is going to do and then extract additional value from the pool. And um, this was kind of the, the, the tragedy of it is that if, it, it, you know, if we were living in a perfect world, if uh, Ethereum wasn't such an adversarial 
environment, um, I actually am convinced that, that Bancorp version two would have been a, an, an enormous success. Um, but, you know, just like uh, being first through the gates with the AMM meant that we had to discover what impermanent loss was. Um, being first through the gates with this, this level of automation also meant that we were one of the first to the table for the discussion of what um, uh, minor extractable value really means and how, um, you know, protocols, no matter how well they're, they're designed, can be abused by, um, by adversaries on Ethereum. And so that was really the downfall of version two. Um, and, you know, I think it was, it was heartbreaking for, um, for not just the team, but for the community to see something that had so much promise and, you know, be designed so well and be executed so well, basically fall over because um, the, you know, you basically are providing a financial incentive for someone to, to abuse the, the protocol. But at the same time, you can't be mad at, at people for, um, for attempting it, right? I think at the end of the day, all of finance, not just, not just DeFi, is just a complicated game. And if you release something that's got a, a, a certain set of rules and you're not doing anything necessarily that is, um, you know, uh, you know, they, no one hacked Bancor version two. Do you know what I mean? Like no one. Yeah, yeah of uh, course. Yeah. They, they just decided, they just realized that they could do something else, right? They, they're kind of like, they're, they remind me a lot of like the speed runners in video games. You know, these people that find you know, really obscure ways to like glitch out a certain part of the program in order to beat yeah. the game in like record time. So there's nothing wrong with it. It just meant that the the, the protocol for better or for worse had to um, had to be retired, and we were left with okay, what were the what were the features of version two that really that people were really interested in? What what if we had mm -hmm. to save one of these aspects of it? What's the thing that we should save? And it turned out that traders weren't really that upset about, um, you know, about losing that slippage thing, right? We were, we were looking at Uniswap and, and SushiSwap and other things, and they were very popular um, despite having, you know, terrible, terrible slippage. Mm -hmm. And on, on version two, we also didn't really hear much um, feedback from the trading community that, that said that, you know, this, this, um, is increasing the value in, in the value that they get per transaction was something that, that was really important to them. And even today, right. I, I talk to uh, traders a lot. I, I interview community members um, and, you know, people that trade professionally and slippage is something that actually really rarely comes up as, um, as a deal breaker for them. Um, but the thing that is a deal breaker for lots of people is the impermanent loss issue. And that was the, that was the yeah. sticking point from version two. That was the thing that people were like, if you're going to save something, let it be this, because mm -hmm. I'm not going back to other AMMs, right? If I have to deal with impermanent loss ever again, I'm out of DeFi. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so version 2.1 was basically, okay, there is another way that we can deal with impermanent loss, right? If you can't, if you can't find a way to, you know, specifically prevent it, what you can do is basically make it obsolete through an approach that uses things like the laws of large numbers, right? Things that, you know, exactly the same strategies that um, insurance companies use to, to transfer risk. We've basically built into the, the tokenomic design of BNT. And so that was, that was how version 2.1 came into being. And it was with version 2.1 that the DAO was launched. And that's when I, I you know, officially became... Uh, 
back then uh, as a community member, but that's when I sort of became involved with the project and, and helped to steer its future. And so version 2.1 at the time, it was still kind of controversial. It was the first time that the, um, the BNT supply transitioned from being one of, you know, a very fixed or, you know, um, very static, I should say, um, to being one that's, that's elastic. And people were worried, you know, what does this mean for the value of BNT? Because there's going to be, you know, we're going to be printing tokens, we're going to be burning tokens. And, you know, a lot of people are still carrying this, this understanding of the, the Bitcoin narrative that the only way for, for things to appreciate in value is to, is to become scarce, I think, um, mm. which whether or not that's true or not is, is besides the point. There, there are, you know, different kinds of value. Um, but it, it did mean that the, you know, version 2.1, it was an uneasy, uh, an uneasy launch, right? Especially to go from version 2 to version 2.1 so quickly. The community was kind of already on the back foot, I think is a, a, a fair observation. Right. It was kind of defensive about um, how, you know, about how to proceed. And this, by the way, was around the time where Uniswap, which was meant to be the AMM, right, the version of Bancor with no token, suddenly had its own token. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the one thing that, you know, the, the major criticism um, uh, against Bancor that um, was brought against it by the Ethereum Foundation was the fact that it had an unnecessary token and that there was no need for it. You can just use Ethereum. And now Uniswap has its own token and, and that's turning into a party. So yeah, yeah it, it was it was it was um, a rough launch to version 2.1. It really was. But I think that the, the community they really did believe in it. That we the team was very, very good at um, spending um, sufficient time with everyone to sort of understand what the what the risks are, what the what we know and what we don't know. Right and how to monitor it, and the fact that it's the the DAO's responsibility to make sure that the protocol remains healthy, and um, I'd say that that's actually worked out really well. I think we've got one of the best um, DAO structures anywhere in DeFi. Um, all of the all of the people that vote in um, in proposals every week are you know are stakeholders with something to lose. Right, you can't actually participate yeah. in Bancor's governance unless you've got something staked in the protocol. So and and you know now that we're um, we're coming up on, on twelve months and that twelve months has seen some pretty dramatic price action, right? We've seen both Bitcoin and Ethereum go completely crazy. I think when um, when version two point one launched, BNT was like fifty cents, right? Mm -hmm. And you know we've seen it go up to like ten dollars and then back down to four dollars. So we've really yeah. explore, explored that whole you know spectrum of volatility that cryptocurrency is known for and exactly mm -hmm. the sort of thing that people were, were um, let's say uneasy about ensuring the effects of, right? These are the, that kind yeah. of volatility is usually the thing that yeah. threatens the impermanent loss. And it turns out that the insurance model has been completely resilient against it. Um, you know, even just over the last couple of days, you can see the uh, BNT is, um, is standing up perfectly well um, against a lot yeah. of the, the economic forces that are acting against it. Um, and so we've really sort of proven that the, uh, the insurance model works. And so what we're working on now is, okay, what are those other things that we set out to do, right? What are the, um, what are the things that version two had that we kind of just put on the shelf for a moment while we figured out, you know, how to, um, how to release the best possible version of, of version 2.1. 
And so there are things that, you know, that we kind of had to concede when we released version 2.1 that we're now interested in, in, um, you know, in reviving. So things like, you know, the, the capital efficient trading, things like, you know, Bancor's um, composability. Um, and we also want to make sure that the, the portability of, of the protocol is, is a lot higher than it is today. Version 2.1 um, with its, um, you know, with its insured user positions, which by the way are individual user positions, um, it makes the contracts extremely cumbersome and it makes the protocol um, quite gas intensive for liquidity providers. And so these are things that we, we knew one day were going to have to be fixed. And so with version yeah. three, which is what I've been researching, um, you know, it almost, it feels like all year now, um, hmm. with version three, we're, we're basically, you know, have pulled together all of that community feedback since October of last year. And we've prioritized everything and we are kind of overhauling the whole thing um, so that all of the features that it already has, they're going to be maintained and they're going to be better than they are now. Um, they're going to be cheaper to use. They're going to be more lightweight. But then all of these other features, right? The things that the community have been asking for, the things that version two had that version 2.1 didn't have, these things are going to start trickling back in um, as we all, and also um, reintroduce the idea that Bancor can be multi-chain, right? So we can now start exploring the idea of having Bancor on, on Polygon, on Arbitrum when it's ready, on you know Avalanche, maybe on BSC or any um, any blockchain environment that is um, that has users and where there's demand for permanent loss protection. Um, version three is is designed to be able to go there very quickly. Awesome, man! That was, I mean, you taught me so much just in that uh, in that response. I mean, and I thought I was pretty well learned on the uh, on the topic, but. That was awesome. And really, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, what I take away from that is really such admiration uh, for Bancor and what you guys are doing, because I think that when you look at a lot of the different projects, really the ones you want to either participate in or invest in or kind of at least at the very least keep your eye on are the products and projects that you know, when something goes wrong or something goes kind of less than desired, let's say, the ability to pivot, the ability to listen to the community, the ability to really do what you're doing, where you're kind of taking stock of what's working, what's not, what's desired, what's not, what's a deal breaker. I thought that was a really uh, cool kind of way to look at it of like, hey, what what do we need to focus on here from a user perspective, because it's not always the same perspective as the people who are creating the project or rather running the project. And so I think that there's also, you know, like we talked about before, there's just all that inheritance, uh, inherent experience in those uh, trials and tribulations. And so, I mean, I think that it's like, you know, be, beyond all of that, there's the courage of, you know, they say pioneers get the, get arrows in their backs sometimes. And, you know, you've seen it with things like MySpace or whatever, but the ability to soldier on and continue creating products that people want and iterating and, 
you know, just improving is so awesome. And, you know, kind of segueing into into my next question. Certainly, you know, we at Saffron know know about that as well because we've had issues. But, you know, I think that there are other projects that haven't done such a great job with that or have allowed those moments to kind of overtake them. And I think that that's something actually Bancor and, and Saffron Finance have in common where, you know, sometimes when things don't go right, that is the opportunity. That is where you really want to seize the moment and and stand up and fix things or do an even better job. And that's where you'll score more points and potentially come up even higher than you were previously where you thought you were going to be. Um, so like I was saying, you know, obviously it is a Saffron Academy podcast. So I was just wondering as most of our listeners, at least I sure hope they know this, uh, SFI was just recently whitelisted over on Bancor. And I was just wondering, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about how that came to be? Did you have any relationship with SciKeeper that led to this or what was like the, the genesis of, of that kind of happening? Yeah, so um, the the Banco community is is pretty uh, pretty welcoming of of any projects that that want to become um, whitelisted. There is a a very well defined um, governance process. There's a vetting period. There's a, a questionnaire that you know we have to make sure that the, um, the the token itself conforms to to certain standards. Um, but I, I think that the genesis of, of um, Saffron ending up on, on Bancor, um, there, there is an existing um, collection of users that are you know, heavily invested in, in both projects. And mm-hmm. um, so the, the conversation, um, you know, I, I see Saffron Finance discussed in, in our own community channels quite frequently, um, mm-hmm. you know, long before the, the whitelisting vote came up. And so I, I think that, um, you know, in the beginning, I think a, a lot of the users that were, um, that, that were kind of following um, Saffron and interested in that project, they were around when um, version 2.1 sort of first started getting up off the ground. And in, in those early phases of the project, of Bancor's project, the, um, the whitelisting process was pretty troubled. We had um, some... Um, some fairly large um, stakeholders um, that had a, a, a very, uh, you know, a considerable um, voting majority behind them that would basically vote against every single whitelisting proposal that came up. Um, mm. And, you know, if, if people are, uh, you know, some of the Saffron users may may know who this person is. I'm, I'm not going to mention mm. them. They, they, you know, they they did mean well, um, but the, mm-hmm. their, their approach um, to, to cryptocurrency is is um, very polarizing. They they basically yeah. said that they will vote down every single proposal, um, and and explain that they're going to vote down every single proposal ahead of time. They used their their Twitter account. They were a very prominent uh, Twitter um, you know crypto Twitter influencer until their account was deleted earlier this year. <laughs> um, but they would announce that they're going to vote against it um, in order to encourage you know, outside communities to buy BNT and then stake it for the VBNT in order to earn, you know, voting rights um, in the uh, hope of being able to defeat them. So they yeah. did 
they meant well, but it's just a, a very abrasive, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, backwards, really. backwards way of supporting the project. Yeah, and, you know, for sure. And they, they had a, you know, they, they were well known. They, they didn't just terrorize um, Bancor. They, they were terrorizing a, a large number of projects that they were involved yeah. in. Um, so yeah, back in the beginning, I think that the, the Saffron community members that we, that we already had, um, they were kind of cautious about, uh, you know, launching into a whitelisting, um, uh, you know, into a whitelisting proposal too soon. Um, you know, Saffron was still relatively new. Um, the, it hadn't really had that time to sort of become, you know, to kind of season itself in, in DeFi. And I, mm-hmm. I you know, I, I don't mean that in, a, in an offensive way, by the way. No, you know, this no, is, not, not at all. Yeah, this is just something that all, all projects have to go through is that every, you know, uh, Bancor is still accused of being a scam. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, uh, you know, every single new project at first um, gets looked at with skepticism. Yeah, very um, highly scrutinized. Certainly. Exactly. And I think, you know, in a way that's very healthy. Um, I, you know, yeah. crypto people are very used to people trying to steal money from them. Um, yeah. And so that, yeah, being scrutinized, as you, as you put it, is, um, is definitely, you know, it's maybe something of a euphemism. Um, I'd say that, you know, sometimes new projects can just get outright attacked. And, and yeah. that, sometimes that could be <laughs> a little destructive. Yeah. But um, when a project is in that period, it's probably not the best time to be, you know, um, to be voting on a whitelisting proposal because what you're really doing is you're inviting people to sort of comment and, um, you know, uh, analyze and, and scrutinize something that really hasn't had the chance to, to get its feet under it yet. And so I, I think that the, the Saffron finance community members, um, within the, you know, within Bancor's community, um, they had the the foresight and understanding to kind of let Saffron breathe for a little bit, right? To mm-hmm. give it a chance to sort of garner some momentum before we, you know, invite, um, you know, the thousands of DAO members to start pouring over its finances. So I would say that that's kind of how it started. It was always a part of yeah. this like background conversation. It was always present. Mm. And then people were just kind of waiting for the right moment. And I think it was really just in the last couple of weeks um, where Saffron Finance has really started to sort of come into its own. Um, you know, it's, it's no longer up in this kind of, you know, uh, being accused of being a scam phase. It's now into this, you know, establishing phase where people are like, wow, this is a really interesting project and I'd like to know more about it. And, yeah. you know, should I invest money with it? And is what, what's this token and how many can I get and who else has these tokens and what's the distribution? When people start asking these kinds of questions, it means that you're, you're being taken seriously, right? For the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, and I think that when we started to see that, uh, that change in sentiment, that's when the community members were like, okay, now it's time. Um, we can actually, you know, it might even be a, a good way to, for Bancor to show its support of Saffron Finance, right? It, it can actually add momentum to a project now um, just yeah. by being accepted by the, the Bancor DAO as being of, you know, um, of uh, a caliber that's good enough that we're willing to, you know, to risk, um, you know, uh, our own token on your success. Um, and so that's, yeah, I think that's how it started. Um, we then had, um, uh, what was his name? Psy, um, Psy Keeper. Psykeeper, yeah, was yeah. Uh, attended our community call, um, and you know was uh, 
going to discuss, uh, you know, Saffron um, with, the, with the community in, in a very straight way. And that was just leading up to the whitelisting proposal. But yeah, Saffron just flew right through is one of the most uneventful um, whitelisting <laughs> proposals that we've, that we've had. So yeah, I just know that, you know, um, the, there are already uh, Bangkok community members that are, um, you know, heavily invested and very familiar with, with, with Saffron. And so if there are anyone listening to the podcast that is, you know, considering um, you know, staking their, their tokens and they don't want to be you know, exposed to a permanent loss, which is, you know, a, a common theme between our, our two protocols. Um, yeah. You know, just just know that uh, we've got a liquidity pool set up for you and um, I, I think there's still space in it. And, yeah, we welcome uh, whoever wants to, wants to show up. Uh, if you want to talk to me about it first, I'm uh, always uh, present in the channels. And so if, uh, if this podcast doesn't uh, satisfy any of the questions that your listeners um, might have, they, they can always uh, reach out to me and I, I can share my contact information with you after this if you want to share it with them. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so awesome. I love that the community members were so astute, really, to realize that, you know, it's almost like when something is new and it's coming out and you want to criticize it you've got all the ammo in the world right you can ask a million questions you can attack them for you know why didn't this happen or you know is your token a scam there's so many things you can hurl at a new project but till like you said it has its feet under it till it's matured till it's proven certain things they don't have ammo to fire back regardless of how legitimate they are you know and even if they do frequently that won't satisfy, you know, half of the things that they're saying, uh, whether it should or not is a, is a different debate. But a lot of the time they just don't want to even hear it. They just want to attack. And so to, to have your community members, you know, realize that that patience was required is, is really so cool and actually really speaks to all of the things you said previously about having such a great community. Um, so that's awesome. I, I loved hearing that. And um, I know we're going we're going a little bit late here, so I'm going to leave you with this last question, uh, which is just uh, a, a little bit more general, but it's something that I see a lot, and I think it's relevant too with, um, you know, I know you're in Australia, but obviously we had this crypto bill in the U.S. or, you know, it was attached to the infrastructure bill. And I know a lot of people, uh, there's varying degrees of regular, uh, of, of regulation that they're okay with. You know, some people think that regulation is good because it legitimizes, uh, crypto and, you know, anything that the government is getting a piece of, you know, is, is worthy of the government protecting, et cetera, which is all great. But I think the one thing that really stuck out to people that really bothered people, including myself, frankly, about the language in the infrastructure bill regarding crypto was that it really seemed to lack an understanding of the right. technology of the space. And so I think, listen, some people, you know, to go back to our previous conversation about people in 2010, 2013, you know, it was like regulation is the, you know, kryptonite, the last thing you want. That's not really <laughs> the case anymore. We're okay with reasonable regulation but you take a look at the language in this and uh, i wanted to bring this up too that you know i think that 
it also kind of spills over into pop culture where you'll see shows kind of use Bitcoin or crypto as they mock it or it's used as like the dumb young characters like I'm going to go buy Bitcoin. Ha ha ha. And it's kind of used as a punchline. And I think it all really comes from a lack of understanding. And so what I was wondering is, you know, what do you think? And this is something I ask myself a lot. What do you think if we can, if there are any steps as a community at large or an industry at large or sector, you know, what steps can we take to kind of mitigate that and, and educate people so that right. they understand, you know, we have the advantage of, we know the technology is sound. We know that this is here to stay, but conveying that seems to be more difficult than I personally would have anticipated. Yeah. Um, I think that there is, um, the, the 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 lack of understanding on on behalf of of the governments and um i think the the failure to communicate um our our culture to them um the, the guilt is shared by both sides quite frankly um mm. so what what so let, let's start with the government because i think it, it's going to be you know uh, your, your listeners are going to uh, going to enjoy what i have to say about governments a lot more than what i have to say <laughs> about them um yeah but yeah so i think that governments are they would do well, I think, to really have a look at why cryptocurrency and these public blockchains exist in the first place, right? Because I think that, you know, one of the things that I was um, paying attention to recently is, I, I can't remember if it was specifically the bill that you're referring to, it probably was, um, but I was listening to the, um, you know, an SEC official basically say something about, um how important it is to um, to protect investors and, and you know this kind of rhetoric, and it's like who's going to argue with that? Of, of course, it's a it's a great thing to uh, to protect investors. We do want you know normal people um, to um, to have the the certainty that the decisions that they make with their money aren't you know funding a criminal enterprise or something like that. There's I, I don't think anyone in their right mind would would actually try to to argue against that. But it's worth pointing out that the reason why Ethereum or one of the reasons why Ethereum and, and DeFi is so successful is because it's protecting investors from their governments. And I think that that is, you know, that's one of the take home messages that I really wish some of these policymakers and certainly some of them do um, would acknowledge, right, is that the, the whole reason why this, this movement and I, I still see cryptocurrency as partially a protest. The whole reason that it has garnered so much momentum so quickly um, is because there is a, a common enemy, and that is, you know, corrupt governments. And mm -hmm. you know, the um, I, I'm not being specifically critical of the United States, by the way, not at all. I, I consider my own government to be among the most incompetent and most corrupt in the world. Um, it's <laughs> becoming increasingly totalitarian, and um, the, the the kinds of uh, shady um, shady tactics that I see, um, you know, some cryptocurrency projects getting accused of, um, you know, the Australian government pulls that, that same shit on a daily basis in terms yeah. of, you know, diverting, diverting funds to their friends or, you know, um, you know, all, all of the kinds of things that, that we don't like to, um, that we don't like to see 
cryptocurrency projects do, the kinds of things that would cause a huge amount of FUD that would really shake the trust in the legitimacy of a project, almost every single um, government is guilty of um, all the time. And a lot of people seem to think, oh, a government would never do that. <laughs> Which is just so naive. And honestly, insane, yeah. yeah, and you don't even have to, you know, it, it's kind of a, it's become something of a, a jerk, really, um, to sort of, um, you know, pick up um, some sort of cryptocurrency um, FUD mm-hmm. and then try and look through just today's newspaper to find out if the government has done exactly the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. You can play, you can, you can play, you know, like a, a bingo game with it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, that's something that I, I, I do think that governments need to pay attention to, which is that this thing exists for a reason. Hold on a sec. This thing exists for a reason. Um, you know, it didn't come from nowhere and the, you know, their behavior, um, has really given birth to, right. Has made cryptocurrency a necessity. Um, and so if they, if they want to become a, a productive part of this conversation, they do need to address or at least acknowledge um, that they have behaved badly, right? And then meet us halfway, right? This is a, a consent of the governed sort of argument. And it, it sucks that in 2021, we're still having this kind of, you know, conversation about, um, you know, the, the, the rights of the ruled. Um, so on the government side, that's what I what that's what I really want to see, right? Learn where this movement came from, acknowledge your wrongdoings, right, or at least your mismanagement, and then try and meet us halfway. And I, I'm sure that we can find a way to work together. I, I have no doubt in my mind that um, that governments and uh, you know governments as a whole, not necessarily specific individuals inside it, but governments as a whole and the um, the voting public actually do want the same thing at the end of the day. Um, and so if we can learn to, to cooperate, I, I, I have every confidence that we can achieve it. So now for the, for the cryptocurrency community, um, one of the things that we need to do together, and this is something that I try to, to support personally, is we need to learn how to talk to each other better. Um, mm-hmm. our, our preferred uh, means of communication is, is things like Twitter. And um, if you have a look at how people usually converse and then compare that to how cryptocurrency people converse, um, one is that it's, uh, it's riddled with like in-jokes and, um, mm-hmm. you know, cryptic, uh, cryptic ways of, of speaking to each other um, that, you know, it means that the, the efficiency of our communication between ourselves is highly efficient, but it also makes it extremely um, insular. Um, and then yeah. the other thing is that we're extremely tribal and aggressive. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the, the early cryptocurrency adopters really came out of um, these, uh, you know, internet societies like, like Fortune and, and other things where, you know, the regular kind of, you know, a polite discourse goes by the wayside pretty quickly. Um, And you can, and not only is it, you know, uh, acceptable to say extremely offensive things uh, on a regular basis, but even encouraged. Um, And I think that that it it, it doesn't put on a very good face for the cryptocurrency community. And certainly it makes it very, very difficult for people that are discovering it for the first time um, to, you know, find something relatable in in it. You know, it's... um, 
I, I try to stop people from from attacking other projects. I, I really don't like to see, um, you know, I, I've seen stuff that's akin to online um, online bullying take place when, you know, someone learns something about the, the private life of, you know, a, a cryptocurrency influencer or a project or a team or whatever. And I think that that kind of behavior, we really need to start settling down a little bit because if cryptocurrency is going to become um, sort of the, the, the global phenomenon that, that, well, actually that it already is, right? It, it needs to sort of grow into its um, global presence. And I think that at the end of the day, we need to realize that whatever it looks like, however it behaves, how people perceive it, um, it comes from us, right? The communities that that, yeah. uh, that are responsible for building it. And so if we're badly behaved, right? If we say terrible things and attack each other on, on Twitter all the time, you, you shouldn't be surprised when people look at it and say, wow, that is really just a bunch of children um, with you know poor impulse <laughs> control. So if that's what people want cryptocurrency to look like, they're doing a really good job of it. But if you want people yeah. to take it seriously and see it for being you know a, a legitimate answer to the world's problems, then we need to start treating it that way and dressing it up correctly. I think that that's all I have to say about it though. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I think if people take one thing away from listening to this podcast, it really should be that. Uh, because I agree wholeheartedly across the board with everything you said. And, you know, there's a saying, you know, you teach people how you want to be treated. And it really is. I mean, you just need to take a quick look at crypto Twitter and everything you say totally rings true. And I don't think anyone's going to push back on that at all uh, because it is so apparent and, and that's pro uh, part of the problem. Um, so, and I certainly uh, intend to, to take that to heart and I totally agree. I think that a, a lot of the stuff is, you know, the community's own doing the, the flip side of that, that, is a positive is that, you know, to change that is also in our hands. Uh, so, you know, hopefully we can spread that message as much as possible and it can, like you, like you said, kind of mature into the level of growth that we've been experiencing. But, uh, I just want to thank you so much, Mark, for coming on. I mean, really so much. I mean, I've learned so much. I, I'm sure our listeners will learn so much from listening to this. So thank you again. And if you have any socials or anything you want to shout out, like a Twitter or if it's just the telegram, that's cool too. But now's the time to do it. Um, yeah, actually I always forget my, my Twitter handle. Let me just <laughs> check it right now. So I've got the memory of a goldfish sometimes. But usually, yeah, if you, if you just, uh, Google my name, it tends to, to come up. Um, cool. Yeah. yeah the, the, I mean, the, I'm sure in the, you said you're in the telegram all the time, right? Yeah. So this is, so yeah, my, my Twitter handle is, um, my initials M B R Richardson. So capitals M B R and then lowercase I C H A R D S O N and then the numbers eight, seven. Um, but yeah, just, just Google my name. It'll come up. I'm usually in the, um, the, the telegram channels for, for Bangkok, both the, um, the, the main protocol channel, which is our, um, you know, properly supervised and, um, <laughs> and, and moderated channel, but then also the uh, bank or liquidity providers, which is more of sort of the, the less formal, more laid back, you know, um, price 
discussion is accepted yeah. there, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm in, I'm in both of those channels. And then there's like a hundred other sort of, you know, backdoors into different um, subcultures. Yeah. Um, yeah if, if you're in any of those, just search for my name or, or ask someone if they um, can share my handle and um, you'll find me pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, uh, I just wanted to, to say, you know, thank you, Zach. Uh, this has been a, a really pleasant podcast. I've enjoyed chatting with you very much. And um, I really hope that, um, you know, Bancor and, and Saffron Finance have a, a bright future together. Awesome, man. Thank you again. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to go and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Saffron Finance underscore. We also have communities on Discord and Telegram, and you can find the links to those in the show notes. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you.